0: So if you liked that last song, you're going to love this message this morning. I'm excited to come here before, and it's a great privilege and honor to uh, have the opportunity to preach with you uh, today. Um, the uh, last several weeks, uh, Pastor Jason has been preaching a series on the Lord's Prayer, as it's sometimes called, or the Our Father in other traditions, uh, this famous prayer and he has spoken to us about the intimacy of that prayer, the personal nature of that prayer, the, the necessity of that prayer, the power of that prayer, the example of that prayer to shape and mold our hearts as we build a relationship with God. But if there is one thing that I have learned in 27 years or so of following Christ, it is that no matter how good the teaching is, no matter how true the words are or how much they might penetrate the heart, there is way too often this disconnect between the things that I know are true and the things I actually do. Preaching can be phenomenal, but then when I try to live it out in daily life, so often I stumble and fall. Why is that? I want to take just a minute, I'm going to ask us to do something here, a little bit of audience participation, just a little bit of vulnerability on your part. In just a few moments, I'm going to count to three, and I'm going to ask you at the count of three to raise your hand, that's it, that's all you got to do, raise your hand if any of the following statements, any one of them, might be true of you. I still struggle to find the time to pray. Hold on, I didn't count to three yet. But you're on it! <laughs> you're doing good. I knew that would be a bunch of them. You're doing good. But I'm going to give people a little more shelter. A little more, I'm going to give a few more statements. When I count to three, if that one's true of you, hang on. Count to three, you raise your hand again. But. Maybe that isn't necessarily uh, an issue for you. Maybe uh, the issue for you is that you just feel like when it comes to prayer, you don't know what the right words are. Like, I don't know if I'm doing it right. Hang on, when I count to three, you can raise your hand too. Or for you, if, if you feel like when you pray, it's just... There's just very little answer that comes back. Or there's very little power that you really see in those prayers. Or if you even honestly wonder, what's the point of prayer at all? Why? What good does it do? Or if I asked you to pray out loud for someone right now, you would feel very ill-equipped and uncomfortable doing that. Or maybe you might feel like a hypocrite if you were asked to lead prayer on a Sunday morning. Or maybe you struggle to pray with your wife or your husband. You've felt convicted to do that. You've you know you ought to be doing that, but it's a struggle. And sometimes that time of the day comes when you think maybe you ought to be praying with your spouse and you just wish they'd roll over and go to sleep so you don't have to feel the pressure to do it. Why is that? Or if for any reason, any reason at all, you just feel like your prayer life is not where you want it to be today. If any of those statements were true of you, on the count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three. If you're sitting in the front, keep them up, keep them up, keep them up, keep them up. If you're sitting in the front today, I want you to turn around and look just so you get a sense of how many hands are in the air. Thank you, you can put them down. We just had this great sermon series on prayer and how awesome and powerful and meaningful it is. Why is it so hard for us to pray? I want to tell you a story. And I've told this story over and over and over again. I think I may have even told this story in a sermon in this church before. And and I think I told this story in the men's group the other night. And if you're a member of my family, you have heard this story dozens of times. It's just one of the most pivotal, pivotal, transitional, meaningful moments in my entire life. And i got to keep telling the story. Twenty-some years ago, literally half my life ago, I was serving as a pastor in a little church in Northern Iowa. And through a series of circumstances... All of which are my fault. All of which were my fault. My life was falling apart. And I was, yeah, I was just watching life unravel in front of my eyes. And I was in despair, and I was lost, and I was hurting. And my family was hurting, and I was wondering if I was going to have to leave my job as a pastor because of what I was going through. And by God's grace, a family member, a distant family member that that I, to this day, don't even really know that well, offered to send me to the woods of northern Georgia, where there is a counseling center called Healing for the Nations a week-long counseling center where they advertise that if you spend one week at Healing for the Nations, it's like going to therapy for three years. Intensive healing retreat. And I went. And it's run by this couple. I think his name is Steve, but her name I will not forget. Her name is Rujanne. And very early in that very intensive week of counseling, Rujan was, was uh, leading a teaching on the idea of, this, uh, of how shame tears us up inside and causes us to do the very things we don't want to do and prevents us from doing the things that we do want to do. And there's a big teaching on shame, and the whole time she was talking, I was like, yeah, that makes sense, but that's not my problem. I mean, I got problems. That's why I'm here. But that's not my problem. And after the teaching was over and there was a little bit of downtime, I still remember, I can see this picture in my head. There was this doorway passing from one room to the other, and I was walking in this doorway, and Rajan is walking towards me, and we kind of stopped there in the doorway. And I said to Rajan, I said, Rajan, I'm confused about something. I heard all this talking, this, this teaching on shame, and it just didn't really resonate with me, and I asked her the question, is it possible that shame isn't my issue, or am I just lying to myself? And I still remember, she reached out her right hand and put it on my right shoulder, so it was kind of cross like this, see, right? As she walked past me, But before, right when she put her hand on my shoulder and before she walked past me, she looked me in the eyes in all genuineness and said, You're just lying to yourself. And walked away. And I was a little flabbergasted at that level of honesty and directness. That's Rajan. But that was like, her saying that to me was like, like a maple tree and putting a tap in the maple tree. Just, just putting it in there a little ways. Because within the next 24 hours, one more teaching session was like a hammer tapping it a little deeper. And one more devotion time was like a hammer tapping it a little deeper. And one more prayer time was like a hammer tapping it a little deeper until it hit a vein Within 24 hours, I was on my floor. I remember on the floor. I remember that red carpet. I was on, my flo- on the floor. Tears are flowing out of my eyes, and the words that are coming out of my mouth is, oh, God, it's shame. It's all shame. Oh, I knew it was shame. She was absolutely right. I was lying to myself. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you story number one because you need to know shame is a liar. It's a deceiver. It likes to hide behind everything else. Even when the spotlight is shining right on shame, you might look right at it and just like I did say, yeah, I don't think that's shame. Is it possible that it's not shame or am I just lying to myself? The other reason I tell you that story is because in my 20-some years since then, serving as a pastor and then a youth pastor and an interim pastor and an elder and a deacon and a friend and all these different ways that I have been working within the church in one way or another, 99.5% of the time when I encounter a person who says to me, I don't get it, why can't I walk this faith life right Why? What's getting in the way of my freedom? What's getting in the way of my healing? What's getting in the way of my relationship with God or with my spouse? 99.5% of the time, the answer has been shame. The guys right now are going through a series on addictive, the addictive nature. And what fuels the addictive cycle, the addiction cycle, guys, you know, is shame. Shame. When people confess that they can't do what they want to do, and the thing that they don't want to do, that's the thing they keep on doing. The reason is usually shame. And if that phrase sounds familiar, it's because I actually got it from Romans chapter 7. In verse 19, Paul is writing and he says, For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this is the thing I keep on doing. And then it's just a couple of verses later when Paul gets to the ultimate expression of shame. He says in verse 24, What A wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? But then, after this gut-wrenching admission of shame and guilt on Paul's part, and the end of Romans 7 at the very end of Romans 7 and the beginning of Romans 8 Paul gives the answer. And the answer is not trying harder. The answer is not do better. The answer is not giving up. It's not even a 12-step program. The answer apparently is found by actually being freed from shame. In verse 25, when, after he says, who will rescue me? I'm going to skip a verse here, but he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no shame because of Jesus. What's going to rescue me from the dilemma of Romans 7? It's the freedom from shame that we have in Jesus Christ. Here is my premise today to all of us. I'm applying it to prayer, but I can already tell some of you are seeing it in other areas. Freedom from shame through the power of Christ is the answer to our prayer dilemma. I'm suggesting you today the reason that prayer isn't working for you is because shame is poisoning your prayer life. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, God has provided the antidote to that poison. And I'll show you what I mean in just a minute, but I want to take a moment to pray myself right now. dear god oh i'm just i'm i'm getting a little worked up just remembering the punch in the gut rujan's words were to me 20 some years ago and i thank you lord that you kept tapping on that maple tap just kept driving it deeper and deeper lord because of the gunk that came pouring out that I was finally able to be free of. And God, I know that you need to keep driving that thing deeper because I need more of it. God, I pray for every person here. I pray that we too would catch just, just the glimpse of the shame in our own hearts that we need to be healed just the glimpse of the shame in our own hearts that we need to to turn to you and to find in you the, the hope and the healing and the antidote that we need. And God, I pray that though we're pounding on hearts this morning, I pray that my words would be gentle, and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would lead us in grace and mercy to where we need to be. Give us ears to hear you, Lord, not me. Give me words, Lord, to speak you, not me. In Jesus' name. Amen. So how is it then that shame poisons prayer specifically? Remember that shame likes to masquerade as something else. It's a liar. It's a deceiver. So if I asked everyone who raised their hands a few minutes ago, if I asked you, what's the the reason that that you have a hard time with prayer, you might have an answer already for me, an excuse, an answer, whatever you want to call it. You might have one already for me, and I'm going to challenge you this morning that that is a mask that shame is wearing so that you don't see that it's really shame you're dealing with. For example, if you told me you're too busy to pray, I'm guessing, it's generally true that if you're the kind of person who is too busy to pray, you're also the kind of person who worries. And if you, therefore, are taking time to worry, you clearly could substitute that time worrying for praying, could you not? But why are you not praying? There's something there and it's not time. I'm gonna argue it's shame. You might be the kind of person who says, I don't really enjoy prayer. Like, it's boring. Like, I don't get a lot out of it. I'm gonna challenge you this morning. I don't really enjoy pumping gas in my car but I do it. Why? It's cold in the Iowa winter. I do not enjoy doing that. Why do I do it? Because I need the fuel. Does not your spiritual life need the fuel? But I'm not praying. And I don't think it's not that you don't enjoy it. I think there's something about it That you're not enjoying. And I challenge you this morning that something you don't enjoy is the fact that prayer taps into and causes you to confront shame in a way that makes you uncomfortable and that's why you don't enjoy it. But I'm going to go even a little deeper than that. Some of you say might say, I don't pray because I don't know if my prayer is rightly worded, or is I don't feel like I'm eloquent when I pray, or I don't even know if I'm praying the right way. What is that? What is the fear that you can't pray good enough? Shame. Thank you. Some of you struggle to stand before God in prayer because you know that you have confessed to God the same stupid sin a million times. And why even go to God? Because is he going to have patience with me to come confess the same sin to him again and again? What is that fear of going to God because of how he might respond to you? Shame. Some of us aren't praying because we think the way that we live, if we were to pray, that would make us a hypocrite. What is that? Shame. Some of us, if we got down to it, we honestly thought or fear that if I prayed openly and it began this conversation with God and I talked to him and he talked back, I'm a little afraid of what he might say. What is that? Shame. For some of us, we know, because we've been going to church long enough, we know we're supposed to pray. But we struggle with a sense of doubt. That it'll actually do anything or it'll actually accomplish anything. And what does the presence of doubt say about me and my spiritual life when I know I'm supposed to believe something, but I don't really? What is that argument? That's shame. I'm going to go a little deeper yet. Because for some of us, prayer is really linked in our hearts to pain. Because we did pray. We prayed earnestly. We prayed hard. God, don't let that bad thing happen to me or to my loved one. We did pray. And God didn't answer. And I'm mad! But I'm going to challenge you this morning that what we think we're saying is, what's wrong with you, God, that you didn't answer my prayer? But what we're really saying is, God, what's wrong with me that you didn't answer my prayer? And that too is shame. It's my experience that if I asked those questions I asked earlier, the majority of the people in any congregation would raise their hands. And it's my experience that if we dug down deep and sat down and had a conversation with each and every one of you, we would find that point where the real reason that prayer is so difficult is because of shame. And if you still don't believe me, I have an assignment for you. In fact, if you do believe me, I have an assignment for you. I want you to set aside a time. Really, it probably won't take more than 30 seconds. you Just set aside a time to pray. Not to pray with someone, not to pray for someone, not to pray through the word in my morning devotions, not to pray through my list. No discipline, no organized prayer, just prayer for you. Nobody else but you, and that's important. All by yourself, 30 seconds to a minute, sit down and try praying just for you. And... Listen to satan's attempts to distract you from praying, probably because you're going to catch your mind wandering for most of us we're going to catch your mind wandering. The first attempt that Satan will probably try on you is to to cause you to think about something you have going on, something you have to do, something that, that somebody said, right try to distract you with life, okay? I want you to, in that, it'll probably hit you in the first 30 seconds. I want you to push that aside. Push that aside and power through. No, I'm going to focus on you, God, and watch if the second attack that comes at you isn't shame. This morning, at nine o'clock before the service this morning started, I tried it. I took my own assignment. First thing I started thinking about was my opening to the sermon. (laughs) Nice try, Satan. Push that one aside. And the second one, the second attempt to distract me from prayer, to derail me from prayer, was Satan trying to tell me that I shouldn't be preaching for some reason. It's so easy for shame to worm its way in. But that's the bad news. The cool thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it moves from bad news to good news. And here's the good news if shame is a poison, and it absolutely is, then Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 is the antidote, and that's where we're going. I've been in Romans long enough. I'm flipping over to Hebrews. There it is. Hebrews 4, chapter 14 to 16. Let's take a look at those words. If you have a Bible with you, uh, we had the men's retreat, so I didn't get the time to put in slides. I have no idea if there's anything popping up on the board or not. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it to Hebrews chapter 4. And five, because I'll move around a little bit, and I'll read it to you too. But here we go. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 begins with the word, therefore. And whenever you see the word, therefore, in Scripture, you need to ask, what's it? Exactly. What's it, therefore? It's referring to something else. Now, go back one verse and tell me if you don't see shame popping up its head here. Here we go. 413. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. In other words, this whole therefore passage comes because of the teaching that God sees everything and we are stripped bare and naked, no masquerade, no excuses before God. Now tell me, that that thought doesn't immediately stir up a little shame. And since that's where this passage actually starts, we then move to verse 14 where it says, Therefore, since you know you're struggling with shame, therefore, and now we move on to verse 14. Since we have, it says, a great high priest who has gone through the heavens or has gone into heaven, depending on translation. We have this great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, that's some nice religious language. High priest is not something we're typically that familiar with in the Baptist tradition. Even as a kid who grew up Catholic, there's still some weird thoughts about priest. Let's understand this priest thing is really important. Okay, To the Hebrew people, by the way, this is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, yes. To the Hebrew people, the priest was really, really important. Why? Because Moses went up on a mountain. He comes down with 10 commandments. One of those commandments, I grew up Catholic, so I can't number them right. Uh, is it the second one? Is it the second one that's no idolatry? Yep. Cool. Thank you. Yes. They number them different. And I grew up in Sunday school learning in a different order. Okay. Um, the second one is no idolatry. Moses goes up on a mountain, talks to God, comes down with no idolatry, number two on the list. And what are they doing? No. Worshipping an idol. Okay? So... The the Hebrew people understood, when you go back to all those 600 and some laws in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people were trying to live to, they understand shame and not living up to it. They get it. And they also understood the incredible holiness of God, and they knew there was a disconnect between their shamefulness and God's holiness. And frankly, they're a little scared of going into God's presence for good reason, And so God gave them this concept of a priesthood, of one person among them who would be cleaned and would be able to be the go-between. He could take the sin of the people before God and have it cleansed and he could bring the word of God to the people and the people didn't have to go directly into God's presence because that's scary. They would have someone who would go for them. So the idea of having a priest to the person struggling with shame is, frankly, very comforting. And it calls us here, it calls Jesus here this great high priest. Now, what does that mean exactly? Actually, we don't have to look far. I didn't even have to go back to the Old Testament to explain all that. Because in Hebrews 5, verse 1, it actually explains it. It says, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So this concept of a high priest is representing the people before God. And now it says, we have a high priest. It's Jesus Christ who has gone into the heavens. We have a high priest who goes not just before us, but with us. See, we may get a little scared about going naked and alone before God. But here's the thing. We're not going alone. The Jewish, the Hebrew people would have understood this better than we do. I'm trying to help us all understand it. We don't go alone. When you walk into the presence of God in prayer, when you walk into the throne room, there's someone holding your hand. It's the Son of God. You might be afraid, you might be ashamed, but you're not alone. If you're feeling ashamed, if you know it, you pinpoint it, I'm struggling with going to God right now because I'm dealing with my stuff. You can literally say, Jesus, come with me. And we have assurance he does. We can say, Jesus, go before me and kind of pave the way here a little. And he does. In fact, that, that, uh, there's another word for clearing the way for me. It's is the word intercede. In Romans 8:34 says Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us paving the way for us so that we can go. We're not going naked and alone. In fact, not only are you not going alone, you're not actually going naked. Hebrews 5:1 explains this high priest goes to God to offer gifts and sacrifices. The sacrifice, of course, is for our sins. Now, I know that in our wider culture today, this is a little bizarre, this idea that Christians are always talking about, you know, the blood of Jesus and blood of sheep and goats and this kind of, what is with the blood, okay? Let's just take care of that for just a minute. The Hebrew understanding from the Old Testament all the way back to the book of Genesis, God laid down this fundamental rule of the universe like gravity, like thermodynamics, this fundamental rule, sin equals death. There's sin, there's death. It's a natural law of the universe consequence. And what is it that's going to wash away the death? That clings to us. You know and I know. Soap and water does not wash away death. Doing a bunch of good deeds. Does not stop death. From knocking on your door. What washes away death. There is only one thing. If there is a body lying on the doctor's table. There is only one thing. That washes away death. It's life. And to the Hebrew people. The symbol. Their culture, the symbol for death, for life, is the blood that flows through us all. It is life. Now, here in our American culture, we got it all backwards. We've seen way too many issues of CSI. If you walk into a room, like if you walked into here and there was blood splattered on the backdrop, you all would think, who died here? Hebrews would think, oh, look, life here. The concept of blood, don't be scared by blood in the Christian tradition. It comes from the Hebrew tradition. It's life, life that washes away death. That's why Christians sing, what can wash away my sin? Exactly. 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 See, that's what happens when a bad singer leads the people. What they get back is bad singing. (laughs) All right. So we have a priest who brought the sacrifice of life. So washing away our sin, when I go and stand before God, understand not only am I not alone, my sins have been washed. They've been covered. The Bible has a word for this covering of sin by Jesus. It's called righteousness. And the Bible tells us in Romans, in Philippians, and in Ephesians, and other places, that when we receive Christ by faith, he wraps us in a robe. He clothes us in righteousness. We are literally wearing the Jesus bathrobe. And it covers all of our sins. Isaiah 61.10 puts it this way, prophesied about in the Old Testament. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, whatever you are ashamed of has been washed in life. Whatever nakedness you fear has been clothed in righteousness. When you go to God, Jesus is your priest. He goes with you. He's gone before you. He clothes you. He cleans you. You're not naked and alone. In fact, you're neither naked nor alone. Every sin is covered and every shame is wiped away. This is why Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And it gets even better. Hebrews 4 keeps going. Verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Understand this. The God that you're going to faced every temptation that you struggle with. It's not as though he doesn't understand quite the opposite. He understands fully. He gets it. It's not as though you go before God and he says, you did what? You're worse than I thought. Shame on you. That never happens. Did you notice how easily my words flowed to shame on you, though? That just felt natural, didn't it? Shame is there. It's not how it is. When you entrusted your life to Christ as your Savior and Lord, you received him as a high priest. He's with you. He's cleansed you. He's clothed you. And it says here, he doesn't shame you. He sympathizes with you. In other words, he gets it. And it says, furthermore, he has been tempted in every way. See, there's some of you right now, I know, some of us, I know right now, who have done things. And we're saying, yeah, I get it. I get the idea that Jesus washes away sins, but you don't understand what I've done. Yes, he does understand. He gets anger and violence. He was tempted to do the same thing. He gets lustfulness and adultery. He was tempted to do the same thing. He gets resentment and doubt and jealousy. He gets homosexual attraction. He's, done the, he's, he's tempted the same way, yet yeah, was without sin. He gets it. Hebrews 5.2, just a little bit in that passage where it's describing what the priest does, it goes on too. It's like a parallel passage. It says, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Now, Jesus wasn't subject to weakness, but he was subjected to temptation, He is able to deal gently, some passage, some versions say, with compassion, He gets it. Don't you understand? There isn't anything you've done that's so bad, he doesn't understand. So what is the conclusion of the matter? The conclusion is the next verse, Hebrews 4.16. 4.16 says, let us then. Then, it says. The word then is a lot like the word therefore. It's it's a, a conjunction. It says, because of this, let us then do that. What's the because of this? Because we're not alone. Because our shame has been cleansed away. Our death and our sin has been washed in life. Because we are clothed in righteousness. Because Jesus understands. Because he is compassionate and gentle. Therefore, shame has nothing. It's got nothing. No teeth in that monster. Shame is a lie that says God is mad at you, but the truth is God understands you. We just saw that. Shame is a lie that says you're naked, but the truth is God has clothed you. Shame is a lie that says God doesn't want to see you, but we just saw God is already with you. Shame is a lie that says God condemns you, but the truth is God has cleansed you. Shame is a lie that says God hates you. But the truth is, God has compassion on you. What shame got left? Nothing. So let us then, it says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Confidence is of course the opposite of shame. But I want to tell you something really cool I found when I was studying this passage. The word there, confidence, is a Greek word <laughs> parasia. Parasia. That's it. I, didn't, I knew I wasn't gonna pronounce that right. Parasia. It comes from two other Greek words. One is pos, which means say, and reo, which means anything. Let us approach the throne of grace and say anything. Lo and behold, this passage was about prayer all along. You can literally go to God and say anything. Any lie that says, you're not good at prayer, you don't have the right words, you don't know how, you can shut up that shame right now. Scripture says you can say anything. So what is stopping you now? nothing. Let's pray. (laughs) God, I was just thinking to myself, I should pray now, but I don't know what to say. (laughs) Say anything. Amen. Oh, God. See, I just told a joke when I was supposed to be praying. This is good. Um, God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you That, that we're not naked and alone, clothed in our shame. But you are with us, and we are cleansed, and we are clothed in righteousness. Thank you, God, that you understand me. Thank you, God, that you know how easily I get distracted, because you are tempted to be distracted too. You get it? Thank you, God, that we have confidence. And and I didn't even finish that verse. It talks about some really good stuff in that verse. I don't have time for this morning. Oh, God, it talks about grace, and it talks about mercy, and all this stuff when we need it, God. Oh, thank you. God, I pray for us all today here, this morning, even if it's just a little bit or if it's a lot of it, Lord, set us free from the bondage of shame. Set us free, Lord, to love you, to pray with abandon. Say anything. In Jesus' name, amen. flow that makes me wide and slow no other found i know nothing but the blood